0: All right, well, good morning, New Hope. Well, we could do better. All right, good morning, New Hope. Good morning, there we go. And good morning to you watching online as well. So glad that we are all together this morning. It's a beautiful Iowa day. If you would, grab your Bibles, please. Turn to the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. We are in chapter 10 and 11 this morning. And uh, as you're turning there, we're in a sermon series called The End. And we're talking about and working our way through this a uh, quite remarkable uh, book of end times prophecy. Uh, I did want to mention that each message does build on the next. And so if you're just jumping in for the first time or, or maybe you've missed some along the way, I want to encourage you to go back. You can go to our church website or Facebook. Uh, past uh, services and messages are all there. And, and just make sure that you're sort of keeping up with all of these again because they do build uh, on one another. Also to mention that if at any point along the line you have questions... This is a book that does bring about questions. We do have out in the lobby, for those of you who are uh, on campus this morning, these cards, I want to remind you of these, that uh, that you can fill out and drop it in the box there on the table, along with your connection card, and we'll absolutely we'll respond to you this week and have some dialogue uh, to help you with your questions. Or if you're watching online, you can also, or anybody, can use my email address there. And we'd love to interact with you uh, throughout this series uh, on questions that you, you might have. Well, as you're turning to Revelation 10... Full disclosure, there's good chance you have not heard a sermon before on Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11. And there's a good reason for that. This is a really hard passage. This is going to be complex. This is going to be, in fact, some say it's one of the hardest two chapters and one of the hardest books. And so buckle your seatbelt, it's going to be quite a ride this morning. you even notice, and some of you might be panicking a little bit because you're used to the fill in the blanks, right? And there aren't any this morning, and it's like, what's going on? And cold sweats are coming, it's going to be okay. Um, just a lot of white space on your bulletin there for taking notes as we go through on things that this are, are important as we work our way through uh, this passage. Now, to give you the, sort of the big picture here, uh, Revelation, and we're, we're looking right now at the seven-year tribulation time period. And in these seven years, we have these three waves of judgments. We have, we have the seal judgments, and there's seven of those, and seven trumpet judgments. And later, there'll be seven bowl judgments. Now where we're at today is we've worked through already the seven sealed judgments and we've worked through 6 of 7 of the trumpet judgments. The bowl judgments and the last trumpet are still to come. Now in our text today we have a pause in the action. The chronology actually won't pick up till chapter 16. And so we've got this pause and we, in this pause we're learning some interesting and important background information that helps us to further understand this tribulation time period and what God is doing during the end times. And so hopefully you're there now. We're going to jump in with chapter uh, 10 and uh, get started. We're just going to work our way through this chapter, and then we'll pivot to chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 1. And let me just mention here the, to give us context, the action that we are reading about is happening in heaven. Remember, we go, we go from heaven back to earth, and we're jumping back and forth, if you will. So now we're viewing events that are taking place in heaven. So, verse one, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And he was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. So, this is an impressive angel here. And he was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. And he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Let's pause here real quick. There is, like I just mentioned, there's a lot of mystery about what is going on here. I mean, what is this little scroll? And who is the, the angel or the seven thunders? And then why was John told not to write down the message that was just given? the bottom line is, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, there's different ideas out there, but we really don't know in terms of what's going on here. But here's what we do know from a passage like this, that the Lord didn't and doesn't reveal everything about what He's doing in the world. That His Word, Scripture, is accurate and true and inspired and inerrant and worthy of living and basing your life upon But it isn't everything that God knows and that God is doing. In fact, I want to share with you another verse that highlights this very idea. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. You see here that this again is accurate and true, but this is only the tip of the iceberg, to use that sort of metaphor. That there's a whole lot more underneath and there's a whole lot more going on that God is doing and that God knows in his wisdom, both in your life and in the world today and in the future in terms of revelation. You remember as a kid, there were just some things you knew that mom and dad weren't going to tell you about. There were just some things that you weren't ready to know about. And it's much the same with the Lord as he puts us in a position to trust him. And so God in his sovereignty, his wisdom, here in this passage says, look, this is not to be revealed. Don't write that down. Let's keep going in verse 5. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And by the way, this is echoing the, uh, the Jewish oath ceremony of you putting your hand in, uh, to heaven. You would raise your hand when you're going to give an oath. This is in Jewish culture. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, there will be no more delay. In other words, what this literally means is time is up. The clock ticked midnight, it's over. This is that declaration. He says, but in the days uh, when the seventh angel is about to sound, his trumpet, this is the last trumpet judgment, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Let's keep going. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll and he said to me, take it and eat it. And it will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. And it tasted as sweet as honey, but in my mouth. But when I I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Literally means bitter. And then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And that wraps up chapter 10. And I don't have much more to say about it. That's, that's, that is the chapter. And it's, again, it's inspired, but there's a lot of mystery here. There's a lot we don't understand. But we trust God. And we trust that He knows exactly what is going on here and why some things are revealed and some things are not. So let's go ahead now and move on to chapter 11. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning now, is in chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod. So I want you to think of like a ruler. And I was told, now by the way, the action now is moving from heaven. Now we're, now we're viewing events taking place on earth. And I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will trample on, that literally means to persecute, they will persecute or trample on the holy city, this is Jerusalem now, for forty-two months, or for three and a half years, now we need to pause here real quick. This is an important two verses here in Revelation. John is told to go measure the temple. Now, this word for there's two different words for temple, and this particular word is is pronounced naus. And what it refers to is the inner sanctuary. So specifically, this is what John was told to measure. I've highlighted it in red. There's a mock of the Jewish temple. And what is in red is the naos. That's the part that John is told to go and measure. It's not the whole complex. It's not the outer court. It's not any of that. It's just that one part of it. He said to go measure the temple or that part, the altar of sacrifice, which was within that red square, and then the worshiper's. Now, here's the key question. What temple is John supposed to go measure? Now if you remember from history, in AD 70, this is a pivotal year for the, the Israelites, for the nation of Israel. Because in AD 70, Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That was the year that temple sacrifices ended. It is not resumed from that time even till today. In other words, when John wrote this book, presumably about 25 years after A.D. 70, there is no temple in Jerusalem. There's nowhere to go down for John and to literally measure out the courts because it's not there, just like it's not there today. So the question is, again, what temple is John supposed to measure? And I'm going to give you my view on this now. My view is that this is a rebuilt temple. In other words, there's no temple there today, but the time will come when a temple will be rebuilt. Now, what's my evidence for that? Well, the Bible says in more than one place that this is what's going to happen. We have the passage we just read this morning, but in the the slide there in Daniel, Matthew, and 2 Thessalonians are other verses you can look up on your own, and you can see clear examples that there is a temple during the end times. And again, it's not there today, so this needs to be rebuilt. This temple is known as, and even referred to today as, the third temple. And just like we at New Hope Church, we have a, 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 we're ready to build. It, it's, it's happening soon. We've got the blueprints. We've got the contractor. We've got the materials coming. Everything is lined up for us to build. We're just waiting on the weather. So the nation of Israel is ready to rebuild the temple. They have everything lined up. In fact, look at this picture here. You can go to a place in Jerusalem called the Temple Institute or you can look up their website today. And all the plans are in place. All the articles that they need are in place. That's what they're on the left and some of the artifacts that would go in the temple. The the mock of that in the lower right and the golden menorah there on the top right. All these things are in place. Israel is ready to rebuild. They are ready to get started. They just have a different obstacle than weather. They've got something else that's in their way in terms of rebuilding. So what's the obstacle? What's keeping Israel from rebuilding the temple? Well, the answer to that is that today the Muslims control the Temple Mount. I'm going to show you this picture here in case you're wondering, what is the Temple Mount? What I put in a red rectangle there, that is the most valuable piece of real estate on planet Earth. World War III will start over that piece of land in terms of how important it is. Not that it will start, but what I'm saying is people will fight and bleed and die because of that piece of land. Because of so much of what has happened there and what will happen on that piece of land. And today, the Muslims, as they have for centuries, control that Temple Mount. They are the ones who, who control it. And most agree, I want to show you this next picture now, you can go to the next one here, that 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 artifact, or that shrine there, excuse me, is called the Dome of the Rock. And most would agree that that Dome of the Rock is positioned on the site where the Jewish temple has to be rebuilt. In other words, they can't rebuild the temple because there's something already there. Something has to be torn down before it can be replaced with a temple. Now, there's, different, there's some debate about that, if that's actually the spot. But this is called the Dome of the Rock. You may wonder, well, why is it called the Dome of the Rock? Well, here's why. Because inside of it, you have this, a rock. That is the highest point on the threshing floor that David bought. More on that in just a moment. And it is widely held for a number of reasons from Scripture and even Jewish history that this is the location, this rock, for where the Holy of Holies sat for the, three temp- for the two temples previous. that that's the location. And today, of course, this other Muslim shrine sits on it. And so that's the location where the temple has to be rebuilt. Now, this Dome of the Rock is a, it's, a, it's the third most sacred site for the Muslim religion. Uh, this is an important uh, building for them. This is where they held the Muhammad ascended into heaven. And again, it's an important building for them. But here's what's really interesting, I think at least, is that the Dome of the Rock has a specific purpose. And to give insight of what the purpose of the rock is, or excuse me, the Dome of the Rock Shrine is for, is we go to this picture here next. Because this is the dedication inscription in 691 AD when the dome was erected and opened up. That's the inscription of dedication for this building. And this is an excerpt from it, probably about half of what's written on that. It says the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was, the, was only a messenger of God. So believe in God and his messengers and say not three. In other words, Trinity. Stop. God is only one God. Far be it removed from his transcendent majesty that he or God should have a son. This is a building dedicated on the purpose and message of, That Jesus is not the Son of God. That Jesus is not the Savior of the world. That Jesus is not what Scripture says He is. You talk about spiritual warfare and architecture. That's what you have in this moment for the last 1,300 years. This building that sits on what used to be most likely the Holy of Holies and the location for the temple is now completely dedicated for the antithesis of that. And that location, that, that, that rock area there, that Temple Mount area, That's the spot where if you go back to the beginning, this this spot shows up over and over in Scripture. That's the spot where Abraham takes Isaac and journeys a long way up to sacrifice his son according to God's calling to, to sacrifice Isaac. And yet, and he raises the knife and yet was called nearly doing it, stop, don't do it. And that God provided a sacrifice in the thicket instead of his son. This again was a threshing floor that David bought. David's heart was to build a temple to God, and God said, no, your son will do it. And Solomon built the first temple. Zerubbabel uh, restored that one because the first one was knocked down, Solomon. Zerubbabel built it right on the same spot. Then you have Herod expanded it later on. You have the same location there. You have the sacrificial system all taking place on that location. All of it, every single part of Jewish history points to Jesus and who he is as Lord and Savior, as the Savior and sacrifice for sins for all mankind. And yet today sits that building with that message. And I don't know about you, but I think it's, it's sort of unthinkable for how in the world this is going to happen. I, I don't know. The, the Muslims are just going to give it up. So, so how does this happen? What's going to take place here? And again, we don't know. But here's what we do know. That a new Jewish temple will be rebuilt because God has a plan. And I will add to it, so does the Antichrist. And there will be a peace accord, and somewhere in that arrangement is going to be the allowance of this temple to get rebuilt And when that happens, the Jewish people who are ready, I mean, they're at the starting blocks, ready for the gun to fire to go, they will quickly rebuild that temple and they will quickly reestablish their sacrificial system and they will be so excited and they will celebrate, they will even celebrate this Antichrist character who was able to make it happen. And for some of the Jews, even replacing this Antichrist as maybe this is the Messiah because after all, he did what Jesus didn't do. He's our military Messiah. He's the one that delivers us in the way we want, not for our sins, but politically. And so they will raise up praise to this Antichrist until we learn halfway through the Antichrist will show his cards. He will go in and desecrate the temple, the abomination that causes desolation. We'll read this later on. And then he will set up for himself in taking over the temple, his true purpose in having it built. And that is that he would be worshiped. He will go into the Holy of Holies, establish himself as the object of worship for all mankind and demand worship on penalty of death. That's what he, that's his end game. That's what he's after. And that's where the temple comes in at these end times. Now I'm going to share with you one other possibility here. Uh, one, one other, one more slide here. Thank you for that. Is, is this idea, John was told, as you remember, not to measure the outer courts, just the naus, the altar, and the worshipers that contain in, which is probably just the priesthood that are working there in that inner area. Why didn't he measure the rest of the temple mount? Well, it could be that the arrangement, I circled it in a red, uh, not a circle, it's a rectangle, uh, down there on the red, it could be that that, uh, that site remains. That is Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's actually a mosque today. That is uh, even more holy of a site than, or sacred than the Dome of the Rock. And so it could be that the Muslims still retain a portion of the Temple Mount, but not where the Temple goes. The point is, John, through the revelation, through what Christ revealed, is very specific about what he is to measure and to what belongs and is dedicated to God and what is not, and rather for the Gentiles to be trampled on for three and a half years. There's a lot there, isn't there? There's the temple. Let's keep going in verse 3. It says, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Once again, that's three and a half years for a 30-day month. Clothed in sackcloth, in other words, they were clothed with, uh, their clothing was uh, for mourning and repentance. That's the, the, the messaging of the clothing there. It says they are the, the two olive trees, referring to the, the power of the Holy Spirit in these two, two individuals, and, and the two lampstands. Lampstands are for light, they're witnesses or lights to the world, pointing to God. And they stand before the Lord of the earth, and if anyone tries to harm them, Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. And this is how anyone who wants to uh, harm them must die. And they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. I mentioned these are hard passages here. Who are these individuals? In some way, we don't know. We don't know who they are. But there are some common theories that are worth just briefly mentioning. Some hold that this is Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament that come back and for three and a half years serve in this role as the two witnesses. We'll say, well, why them? Well, because we see in the Old Testament, Moses was, was somebody who God used to turn water into to blood and, and to bring plagues on Egypt, and, and Elijah was used to stop it from raining on the land. Uh, you also see in Matthew 17 that Moses and Elijah returned at the transfiguration. When Jesus is there, and I encourage you to go on your own and read this passage, and he's transfigured before the Lord, Moses and Elijah show up in that scene. And so they think, well, maybe they're the two witnesses. Uh, maybe. Others say, no, no, probably not. Maybe it's Elijah and Enoch, also two individuals from the Old Testament. I say, well, why them? Well, because they're the two people that never died. They never died. They they were snatched up, same word for rapture. They were taken up to heaven, and so they've never died. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 talks about how for all people they're appointed once to die. In other words, we, we die. This is what happens. And so maybe, maybe it's them because they've never died, so they come back, and then let's keep going in verse 7. You'll see how this ties in. It says, Now when they have finished their testimony, so after 1260 days, the beast, the Antichrist, in other words, that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city. In other words, Jerusalem, maybe even the Temple Mount. We don't know, but, but certainly Jerusalem, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So what happened? Well, in the time appointed, God's in control. Their ministry was done. The Antichrist will show up and will kill these two witnesses. And then to bring maximum shame upon these two individuals, he will leave their bodies unburied and exposed for all to see. This is also, in addition to maximum shame, this was also a good and telling reminder of what happens to anybody in the world who opposes the Antichrist. It becomes that kind of messaging. Let's keep going. Verse 9. And for three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and we'll celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. And you might want to ask, well, how did they torment them? They just shared truth. They shared the truth of who Jesus is and that was considered torment for the people of the earth. And so you hear you have this global celebration. It's like Christmas. They're celebrating, they're exchanging gifts. The whole world gazing upon these bodies, not hard, the internet, it's all right there. Just kind of watch it and celebrate of what's going on. Verse 11, I love this. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. We're going to see a resurrection here. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. I bet. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. I would love to see the faces of the people, either in Jerusalem watching this live or maybe watching it digitally around the world, to see this event take place. This ground to a screeching halt, their Christmas-like celebration of these two guys being killed. You know, this was looping all the time in terms of people watching this over and over again. They are in shock. But actually, here's the more shocking part. Look with me at verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city or Jerusalem collapsed and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. This is the first time in Revelation where people who are not believers in Jesus for the first time give glory to God. And it's this event, despite all the judgments we've been reading about, the seal judgments, The trumpet judgments, it was like hardening the hearts of the world and the nations, the people of the world. And yet at this scene for the people in Jerusalem and maybe even beyond this scene that they have, they behold, there's a a moment of time where they begin to give glory to God. And I don't know if it was short-term and short-lived and just an emotional response out of fear and awe of what they just saw, or if this was truly transformative in their life of coming to a place of faith in who the Lord is. But either way, this scene will get people's attention. Let's wrap up this morning, verse 15. As we do, the action now jumps back up to heaven as we close. It says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of, the, of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. I love this. Verse 15, you can write this in your Bible even. This is an eviction notice. We know what that is. You put it on the door. And you say, you have to leave. And that's what's going on here. The announcement is an eviction notice. It's Satan's worldly kingdom. It's over, and Jesus is beginning to take over. There's a new resident, there's a new owner, there's a new one coming in to take over. This is a verse and message of hope. Verse 16 as we continue. And this announcement, this verse 15 announcement, will launch praise in heaven. Here we see as we close. And the 24 elders who were seated on their throne before God fell on their knees and worshiped God, saying, give thanks, we give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of, Of his covenant, and now the last part of this verse, we transition the scene back to earth, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an an earthquake. Excuse me, and a severe hailstorm. What another another scene? This beautiful scene, this a powerful scene of worship and holding God in awe, as He is so worthy to be. Interestingly enough, too, we see another temple, don't we? We see a heavenly temple, and we know from the book of Hebrews that the earthly temple, whichever one we're referring to, is only a copy or a shadow of the real temple that's in heaven. And in that temple, there was an ark of the covenant there. Now, is this the same one that Moses built? We don't know. We don't know. And we don't really even know what happened to that ark. Maybe you've wondered what what happened to that. And we don't know. Maybe uh, some have surmised that it was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586 and took over. Uh, Others think maybe it was stolen. Um, Maybe some hold it was hidden under the temple mount, that it's it's just buried under there somewhere, and someday that it'll be found. Uh, If you're an Indiana Jones fan, it was taken to Egypt, right? And they had to go find the ark over there. But we don't know where it's at. But the point is, the big point is that there is this heavenly temple, and here we see God in His sovereignty working His plan. He tells us parts of it, and He asks us to trust Him with all of it. And that brings us then to the halfway point. We are now halfway through this series. We are now halfway through the book of Revelation. And we're halfway through the seven-year tribulation. And as we close, and before I invite the band to come on up, I just want to offer a word of, um, I don't know, appreciation. I have seen more uh, of you over the last six weeks, getting time in God's Word than maybe ever before. And the, way I, the reason I say that is because you, many of you, you're showing up. You've got your Bibles. You've got big notebooks, and you're taking notes. Some of you are coming with your Bible studies uh, through Revelation, and so you, you hear the Sunday message, and then, but then you're on your own during the week. You're studying it, and you're, you're reading through, and you're, what does this mean, and what does that mean? You're going to small group and you're asking questions. The the emails I'm getting, people, you guys are in the word. And here's the thing, great job. Because good things happen when a local church gets in God's word. Because God's word gets in us and begins to change us in terms of who we are. So I want to encourage you, don't stop. Keep keep reading, keep studying, keep stretching, keep asking questions. Even if you're reading through things like chapter 10, like, "Eh, I don't get it. Keep going. Don't stop. Keep reading because God will honor this. And I also want to remind us as we close with this idea, and I shared this with us several uh, weeks ago, several weeks ago, and it's this, that that obedience is better than knowledge. And it's a good reminder as we're halfway through the series because we can get all caught up in the details of Revelation and sort of forget the big picture of what's going on here and what God wants us to learn. Obedience is better than knowledge. Now, you can't obey him if you don't know him and know his word. But we have to watch out for the danger that we can know a lot about this and know all the details, even of revelation, but not obey it, not live it out. And so I want to encourage us in a moment, pray for us that you and I would continue to be men and women that pursue Him with all of our hearts, that you keep getting time in the Word. And and if you're like, well, to be honest with you, I'm I'm really not in the Word. Can I just encourage you this week, grab your Bible and just start reading. Pick a book of the Bible, maybe one of the Gospels, maybe Revelation, but getting in the Word. Imagine if you went through your week and you only got one meal on Sunday morning. You'd be grumpy and pretty lethargic by Monday and Tuesday, right? Right? But sometimes spiritually, that's what we do. You need more than that. You need more than just Sunday morning. So get in the word. And I want to just applaud you and encourage you to keep going, to keep doing that so that we're his church that is living ready. Living ready. I'd like to invite the worship team to come on up, and we're going to close in worship. But before we do, though, and and we're going to pray in just a moment, I want to remind you that if you have any immediate prayer needs or you just want somebody uh, somebody now, right now, to, to pray with you about something maybe you're going through or a loved one that we will have folks up here after the uh, service that you're welcome to come up and you're encouraged to come up and to um, to receive prayer. And as we go to prayer, I, I want to do two other things. Uh, one is that we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray. Um, we're also going to pray for current events. We're going to pray for Ukraine. It's, that's important. We need to be doing that. And I, I know many of you are during this time Is it's interesting as we're going through Revelation and then you're watching the evening news. And it's just, it's just, um, it's heartbreaking in terms of what's going on. Uh, also, I want to pray, we're going to pray over a special friend, a special person that's watching this morning, Daryl Van Holten. Uh, I trust that you're able to tune in and be with us this morning, you and Darianne. And, and uh, just know that we are praying for you. Uh, Daryl has is, is been battling uh, for his life as many of you know and many of you are praying for and is, is in an ICU. And, and, uh, but God is continuing step by step, little by little, to heal him up. And so uh, the battle is not over. Uh, we got to keep praying, stay vigilant. Uh, Daryl, please be praying for him. And Daryl, I'm just so glad for the first time that you're able to join us and watch this morning online. And We love you and we're with you. Would you? Sure. Would you pray with me? Let's do that together. Father, this morning we come before you as as your children, and we recognize first and most that we're in a posture of trusting you with the details of our lives and with the things we see on the evening news and even with passages of scripture that may not fully understand, but we know that you are good and that you are working your plan to your desired end, that you are dealing with sin, that you are conquering the enemy, that you are working to evict the evil one, and to take over. And Father, we love you and we trust you for this incredible message of hope that Revelation is. Father, this morning we pray for our friend Daryl. We continue to pray for uh, his health and recovery. We pray you'd be with his medical team and just continue to step by step to strengthen him and heal his lungs. And that soon he would be walking through the doors here on campus of New Hope Church that we could see him and and hug him and just celebrate what you have done in his life during this challenging time. And Father, we do pray over our world. And we pray for the people of Ukraine this morning. We pray for your protection. We ask for peace. We pray, Father, for the church that is there that is no doubt the front lines of compassion and care. And we ask that you would take a situation like what we're all viewing with great confusion, and that you'd redeem it and work for good, that your kingdom would advance even in situations like that. Father, we love you, and we thank you that we can trust you in all things this morning. And everyone said, amen.